John chapter 7 once again. John chapter 7. Uh, we've read uh, in our scripture reading this portion which we'll look at today. And uh, we're going to look at the question, who is Jesus? And most uh, would probably say, well, I know who Jesus is. Uh, he's my Savior. I trust most and of all of you could say that this morning. But, you know, uh, sometimes the people that we rub shoulders with, the people that we see uh, around the world today, the people that we hear interviewed and so forth, on uh, they have no clue as to who Jesus is. I uh, understand one ra- a Christian radio station went out in the streets of Philadelphia to ask people, who is Jesus Christ? And sometimes they would even ask them, well, do you think Jesus Christ is God? Well, the answers they receive revealed the confusion that many have with regard to these crucial questions. One young woman responded, Jesus Christ was a man who thought he was God. Another young woman, a biology student, replied, Well, Jesus Christ is pure essence of energy. God to me is energy, electric energy, because it's something that's not known. One man answered, I think that's something you have to decide for uh, for yourself. But he had some beautiful ideas. Others replied, well, he's an individual who lived 2,000 years ago who was interested in the betterment of all classes of people. Some said he was well-liked, he meant well, he was a good man. But you know what? Most people were just confused. They answered, well, I don't have any idea. I don't know. I don't know who Jesus Christ is. Now, I recently heard a preacher say that our society today is not gospel-hardened, but rather gospel-ignorant. It's not that people are hard to the gospel, it's that they just don't know what we're talking about. And it's sad that in a country like ours, where anyone can easily hear about Jesus Christ, there are so many people who just don't know who He is. And if a person does not have a basic knowledge of who Jesus is, then he cannot trust in him as his Savior and his Lord. It'd be like believing in a Jesus of his own imagination. A correct knowledge of who Jesus is must underlie saving faith in him. And so, as John uh, labors to make clear in his gospel this crucial, crucial question for every person to answer correctly, who is Jesus Christ? It's one that you need to get right. You and I need to get this right. But this is also an important question, even for those of us who've already believed in Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. And just as in human relationships, such as in marriage, there's always room to grow to know the other person more deeply And so it is in our relationship with Jesus Christ. At least 25 years after his conversion, the Apostle Paul said his aim, his goal, was still that I may know him. And I don't know, some of you have been probably saved at least as long as I have, 50 years or so, maybe more. Your goal, your aim ought to be just like Paul, that I may know him and I know him better 
every day. The more deeply we know Jesus Christ for who He is, the more quickly we will submit to Him as our Lord, the Lord of our every thought, or every word, or every deed, and more readily we will trust Him in the daily matters of life. Now here in John chapter 7, we kind of get to a new chapter uh, this morning, and new section, John chapter 7 and chapter 8, it relates some of the incidents at the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles in Jerusalem that really show us some mounting opposition to Jesus. Be about six months after his feast, uh, this feast that Jesus would be crucified. But here in chapter 7, verse 1, he begins by saying, After these things... After these things, that reflects kind of a gap of six months between the, uh, this and the events of chapter 6, which took place at the time of the Passover, according to verse 4 of chapter 6. And John fills the gap by adding, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, there were three great Jewish feasts in Jerusalem that every male was expected to be at. There was Passover, that took place in spring. There was Pentecost, that was 50 days after Passover. And then here are the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place in fall. Passover pictures the Lord's death for our sins in the Passover land. Pentecost foreshadowed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And tabernacles pictures Christ coming again to joyously gather the harvests of his people and dwell permanently with them. Now this feast had a double purpose. First of all, to remember Israel's time in the wilderness when they lived in tents. Sometimes this is a feast of tabernacles. It's called the Feast of Booths by some, but it uh, it's a time when they remember when they lived in tents and they uh, it's also a time to rejoice before the Lord after the harvest, in the, particular the grape, the olive, the fruit harvests. It's also involved looking to, uh, forward to a new exodus, the time when the kingdom of God would be brought in with all the additional blessings. And so he adds that it must be a most joyful time. It was the most joyful of all the three feasts. In Jesus' time, it included pouring out water as a remembrance of the water from the rock that sustained Israel in the wilderness. It had a candle lighting ceremony that commemorated God's presence with Israel through the pillar of cloud and the fire. Jesus kind of plays off of these two ceremonies when, uh, uh, when he invites those who are thirsty to come to him. And he invites them to drink. We'll see that later in this chapter. And then he proclaims in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And so on one level, John 7, verse 1 through 13, is kind of setting the stage for these two chapters. But it also reveals to us some wrong views about Jesus that the Jewish people, including Jesus' own brothers, had about him. A careful look at these verses also reveals that Jesus is both Messiah and Lord, which fits into John's purpose that we come, uh, we would believe in him as Christ, the Son of God, so that we might have eternal life. Remember chapter 20, verse 31, is the real uh, emphasis about the whole, whole book. We've reminded you of this uh, uh, many times throughout our study thus far. 
So the main point is believing in Jesus for salvation depends on having the right view about who he is. Now, the dominant focus of these verses is on the wrong views about Jesus. So let's look at the wrong views of Jesus. Many have the wrong idea about who Jesus is. They say that, well, Jesus was just a man. Uh, He might have been good, but he was misguided. There are three groups of people pictured here. uh, All to one degree or another have the wrong view of Jesus. We have his brothers, then we have the Jewish leaders, and then we have the multitude at the feast. Notice, first of all, the unbelieving view of Jesus. The unbelieving view. Verse 3 says that his brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, and thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. His brothers had a worldly, unbelieving view of him. They were saying, you know, you need to go public so that uh, you can really make this count. You need to let everybody know who you are and what you're doing. And the reference to Jesus' brothers here refers to other sons that Mary and Joseph had after the birth of Jesus. Now, the Catholic Church believes that Mary was a perpetual virgin. But the biblical evidence is against that view. You read the Bible and you say, well, no, that can't be true because these brothers were Jesus' half-brothers born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus' birth. And although they were unbelieving at this point, we know that at least two of the brothers, that is James and Jude, later came to believe in Jesus. Uh, He appeared to James after the resurrection according to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7. Uh, James later became the leader of the Jerusalem church and wrote the epistle of James. Jude, who humbly identifies himself in Jude uh, verse 1 as a bond servant, a slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. He wrote that uh, short epistle, the epistle of Jude. But here in verse 3 and 4, they offer him some unsolicited career advice. You love that when relatives give you some unsolicited career advice. Here's what you ought to do, you know. Here's what you ought to do. So that's what they were telling him. We read verse 3, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret. He himself seeketh to know, be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. But he also says in verse 5, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Now we cannot say for sure what motives lay behind their comments here, but some would say, well, they were sarcastically ridiculing Jesus. They were saying, you want to be famous? Go to Jerusalem, do some miracles, you'll hit it big time. Or they could have been motivated by family shame. Jesus had been very popular at one point, and now it seemed like, as we saw in chapter 6, he's losing disciples. And if he went up to Jerusalem for a big feast, well, perhaps he could gain some of them back and he could save the family name. Or at best, they were offering sincere but worldly advice. If you want your messianic claims to be known, you need to prove yourself to the religious authorities in the capital city. Now, my understanding is that probably these brothers thought Jesus 
of Jesus in line with the multitude that he should be a political Messiah, one who would deliver Israel from Rome. And if Jesus' miracles meant that he was uh, this promised political Savior, then he needed to establish his claim in Jerusalem and with the Jewish authorities and with the masses there, not in the obscure villages of Galilee. And they may have been embarrassed over Jesus' kind of strange claims maybe to them that people were to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Maybe they thought that was strange. Now we tried to explain that and what that means, but maybe they thought it was strange. But since he was their brother, they didn't turn away like some of the offended disciples had. Rather, they gave him their opinion. They gave him their advice that he would best establish his claims if they were true, if he would show himself and do some, some big miracles for everybody to see. Now, the brother's advice to Jesus is very similar to the temptation that Satan put before Jesus. Remember Satan in, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, for instance, told Jesus, you know, uh, we're up here on the pinnacle of the temple, and if you'll jump, jump off, your angels will carry you safely to the ground, and everyone will see that, and they'll be astonished, and they'll bow before you as the Son of God. So the brothers were saying, go up to Jerusalem and do some spectacular miracles, and everybody will follow you. It was a worldly-wise publicity and marketing strategy. 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 There you go. Now I'm, I'm thinking about... Uh, who was it? Gilbert and Sullivan. Strategy. Yeah. Anyway, for those who don't know Gilbert and Sullivan, anyway, Pirates of Panzans. Yeah. Major General. Oh, well, here we go. Nothing like getting off course, is there? We know there were plenty of people today who try to build their ministries or their churches through worldly methods. They use the methods of publicity and marketing. It's interesting to see some of the titles of pastors today. While I was uh, selling newspaper advertising, I ser uh, while I was serving as an assistant pastor some years ago, I had to work, but I could uh, serve in the church, and I sold newspaper advertising. And I was given all the churches in the, in the city as clients. That was part of my client list, was all the churches. Go sell them advertisements in our newspaper. I wonder why they picked me to do that. But anyway, I went to some of those churches, and here's what I saw on the doors of some of the pastors there. Pastor of arts and drama. you know, Or there's a pastor of worship and praise. You could, you'd know you'd see that one. I even heard of a pastor of marketing. A pastor of marketing. Now, there's nothing wrong with letting your community know that your church exists. And nothing wrong with letting people know when your services are. You know, a little advertising can go a long way sometimes. But you know what? If we would be fulfilling the great commission of going into all the world, people would hear about it. They would know that our church exists. They would know when the service times were. And that's not just the job of an outreach pastor. That's the job of every Christian, every member of our church. 
to spread the word. Jesus said to his disciples here in verse 6, notice that he says, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now I'll I'll comment on verse 7 where Jesus mentions the world's hatred in a moment, but then he tells his brother in verse 8, Go ye up into this feast, I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. So he stayed there in Galilee, and after his brothers left for the feast, then Jesus went up, not openly, but as it were in secret, as it says in verse 10. He said, you can go at any time, but I must go at the time and in the manner that my Father directs me to go. So John is showing Jesus firm resolve to do the Father's will, not the will of his unbelieving brothers, even if they meant well. Now, we should not miss the sober truth that it's possible to be in close proximity to Jesus, to know him as few others do, and yet still be unbelieving and lost. We say, how can that be? To be right next to Jesus and know him like nobody else knows him and still be unbelieving and lost. We might wonder about Judas along that line. But we again notice it here about his brothers. Jesus' brothers had grown up with him. Now, yes, can you imagine that uh, what it would have been like to have a sinless brother? Anybody, uh, well, you might have had a brother or sister who thought they were sinless. They never did anything wrong, right? It was always his fault or her fault. I didn't do anything. But here Jesus was their brother and he grew up with them and he had no sin. But they must have sensed that Jesus was different than they were. Probably they resented his sinless life because it convicted them of their own lives and their own sins. They had undoubtedly heard his teaching and they knew that he performed many miracles. And notice the unbelief in this statement here. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. The little word if there is a sure sign of unbelief and doubt. Remember how Satan tempted Jesus with that stipulation as well. If thou be the Son of God. Matthew 4. And so the application here is that you can grow up in a Christian home. You can go to church every week. You can know a lot about Jesus, but not personally believe in Him as your Savior and as your Lord. So there's an unbelieving view. Secondly, there's a hostile view. The Jewish leaders had a hostile view of Jesus. This man is upsetting our traditions. We need to kill him. We need to get rid of him. And by the Jews here, John means the Jewish leaders. They were seeking Jesus, but not so they could learn from him and believe in him, but so they could kill him. And we see this throughout this chapter. Because Jesus is threatening their power, which they use to control the people through fear. We see that in verse 13. Howbeit no man spake openly for fear of the Jews. He didn't fit their idea of a political Messiah who would play their political game and reward them with all the nice positions in the kingdom. And when he upset the money changers table in the temple back in chapter 2, he threatened their income. So they didn't carefully listen to Jesus' teaching or think rationally about the amazing miracles that he was doing. Rather, they reacted emotionally because Jesus threatened their comfortable way of life. 
And even so, there are many today who do not believe in Christ because they react emotionally rather than rationally. They sense that to come to Christ would mean that's going to end their plans, their prestige, their dreams, their control of their lives. And they like their comfortable lives. And they don't want to face the truth that they're rebels against a holy God. They're sinners that need to be saved. So there's a hostile view. And then thirdly, there's a mixed view. This is the multitude. The multitude had an inadequate mixed view of Jesus. Uh, They said, on the one hand, he's a good man. No, he's the leading people astray. Look at verse 12 and 13. And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, he is a good man. Others say, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews." This murmuring, again, as we saw last week, means grumbling or quietly debating among themselves. Since John notes they were afraid to speak openly, they were afraid the NSA was listening in. The multitudes were divided into two camps. Both of these camps are wrong. Some said he's a good man. Now that's true as far as it goes. But it didn't go anywhere near as far as it should have, as the Gospel of John demonstrates to us. If Jesus was not God in human flesh, His claims would have meant that He was not a good man, but a self-centered man. He was always talking about Himself. He was always telling people that they should believe in Him as the only way to eternal life. He claimed that the Old Testament was written about him. He claimed that he to be the bread of life who would satisfy the hunger of all that would come to him. He claimed that whoever believes in him would have rivers of living water flowing from his innermost being. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed that before Abraham was born, he existed. No good man who was not God in human flesh could say those things without being considered a deluded, crazy person. Well, the other camp thought that Jesus was leading people astray. They thought he was deceiving them. They were the traditionalists. They thought that the ways of the fathers were good enough. But Jesus was a deceiver. He was a a, a very good deceiver. He got many fiercely monotheistic Jews to believe his claims to be God to the extent that many of them eventually suffered persecution. They even died because of their belief in him. So he was a very good deceiver. But he also would have been a skillful evil deceiver, but because he deliberately led people to believe in him, knowing all the time that he was not the true way to eternal life. He condemned them to a godless eternity. Nothing could be worse than knowingly deceiving people with regard to their eternity. So now here we have both People, kinds of people, both camps are in error. Both errors would result in people still being under God's righteous judgment because neither camp believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So why did these Jewish people who had the Scriptures, who heard Jesus' claims and they saw His miracles, why did they not believe? Well, I'm glad you asked, because we have the cause for these wrong views. 
the cause for the wrong views about Jesus. And John gives us really two reasons why the Jews at the feast did not believe. First, they hated Jesus because he confronted their sins. Don't you just love it when somebody tells you that you're wrong? No, I don't like it either. Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong, even if we know we're wrong. But Jesus confronted their sins. It says in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me, because I testify it that the works thereof are evil. Second, they are ambivalent about Jesus because they feared the religious leaders who would put them out of the synagogue if they believed. They wanted to be politically correct again. What it tells us in verse 13, it tells us later in chapter 9. So Jesus tells his brothers, The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. And we saw in chapter 3, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. To come to Jesus, you have to let him confront your sins. You have to turn from your deeds of darkness and you need to learn to walk in the light as he himself is the light. And also understood in Jesus' words is the truth that if you follow him, the world is going to hate you. You follow Jesus, the world's going to hate you because of your holy life. You will not be the most popular person at the office. You'll be not be the most popular person at school if you don't join the world in its sinful ways. James, one of Jesus' brothers who later believed, draws the line in James 4, 4. He says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore shall be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. You have to choose sides. So which side are you on? And coupled with wanting to blend in the world is the fear what people would think if they followed Jesus. Maybe that's why sometimes we're afraid to be a witness. Because we're afraid people are going to hate us. We're afraid people are going to despise us. Oh, you follow Jesus. So if you want to cover up your sins, you want to blend into the world, you will not truly believe in Jesus. That's the cause for these wrong views. Which brings us to the saving view of Jesus. The only saving view of Jesus is that He's both Messiah and Lord. Now that's not stated directly in the text, but it sure comes through. First of all, Jesus is Messiah. We see this by the fact that Jesus did not do his own thing, but rather he lived in obedience to the Father's plan. If Jesus had chosen to do so, he could have been the most popular political Messiah that the people wanted. They wanted to make him king, as we saw in chapter 6. And he could have gone up to Jerusalem. He could have done like the political candidates today do. He could have worked out some backroom compromises. He could have given some promises for political favors. And he, he could have swept into office. But Jesus was operating on God's timetable, which ultimately led to the cross. And so Jesus tells his brothers in verse 6, My time is not yet come. 
He was probably referring to his time to go up to the feast as well as the manner in which he would go there, not openly, but at first in quiet, undramatic ways. He knew that he had come to die for their sins, but at the proper time, not in response to his brother's worldly, his brother's worldly advice. He came to lay down his life for his sheep in obedience to the Father's will. Lord willing, we'll look at this time element a little bit more this evening. First of all, Jesus is Messiah. Secondly, Jesus is Lord. Jesus tells here, he testifies to the world that its deeds are evil. Of course, many of God's prophets down through the centuries have done the same thing, but those prophets were identifying themselves with the sin that they preached against. You know, how many times did you read in the Old Testament the prophets said, uh, prayed and said, we, we have sinned against the Lord? But here Jesus came as a light shining in the darkness, and he would ask in John eight forty six, which of you convinceth me of sin? As Peter testified in chapter 6, verse 69, Jesus is the Son of the living God. Jesus rightly could call on all people to follow him with the promise that he could give them eternal life. And as the officers who were sent to arrest Jesus later would come back without him, they would say something like this, Never man spake like this man. Jesus is the Lord God of in human flesh. And to be saved, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Savior, and that He is the eternal Son of God. And so to to wrap this up, there are several applications that we could take away from these verses, I believe. Number one, first of all, is if you grew up in church and you've been familiar with Christian teaching all your life, do not be fooled into thinking that you're saved because you have a familiarity with with Jesus. If Jesus' own brothers could not be saved by their connection, it shows that no one is saved by familiarity alone. You must personally believe in Him as your Savior from sin, the one who bore your penalty on the cross. And secondly, if you have believed in Christ, you must let Him confront your sins so you forsake it, And you walk in the light. Through God's word, Jesus tells us how to think, how to speak, how to act in a godly way. Listen, if you're not letting the word of God confront your sins, you're not walking with Jesus. Did you hear me? If you're not letting the word of God confront your sins, you're not walking with Jesus. With Jesus. And finally, if you believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you must be at war with the world. You are either a friend of the world or you're an an enemy of God, or you're a friend of God and an enemy of the world. John said in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man... Woman, boy, girl, love the world. The love of the Father is not in him. We have to realize that the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. 
So what are you going to do this morning with Jesus? You know who He is? Is He your Lord and Savior? Are you allowing Him to confront your sin and forsaking it and walking in the light? Do you realize you have to be at at odds with the world if you're going to follow Christ? Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven...